0: Today on CityCast DC. The DC jail has a lot of issues. The city's been under pressure to improve conditions there. Jenny Gathright from DC is, is here to tell us how they're doing. Spoiler alert, not well. Also, lead producer Priyanka Tilvey is with us, and we're going to chat about this and a few other top stories. Today is Friday, October 14th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, so we're going to go to our bigger picture segment where we talk about some single aspect of life in the DMV and how it matters beyond itself. Uh, Jenny is going to talk to us about DC jail.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. This week is actually a big anniversary in DC. It's the 50th anniversary of the DC jail uprising, which is an event that I'm not sure a lot of people know about. When I go around town and I've been talking to people, even people who've lived here for a long time, um, sometimes don't know that this happened. But 50 years ago this week, a group of men in cell block One of the old D.C. jail, they organized an uprising. They held a group of corrections officers hostage, and they even held the director of the Department of Corrections hostage in protest of their conditions.
0: What were the conditions?
1: Well, the D.C. jail, the old D.C. jail, was at double its capacity. Um, These men were in a condition, one Washington Post editorial called it a deadlock, which means that basically they weren't allowed out of their cells except for two showers a week. And they even had to eat lunch inside their cramped cells and they weren't let outside to eat. So um, the conditions were really bad. And I think it's important to talk about because there's so many parallels to the situation the city is facing today. The city was on the cusp of building a new facility just as it is today. And today there are also these complaints about faci- like, the facility of the jail, the conditions that people are being held in.
0: What are the complaints today?
1: Well... Last year, um, the U.S. Marshals Service conducted a surprise inspection of the jail, and they surfaced a lot of the same complaints that people have been talking about for years. People told the Marshals Service inspectors that they were being punitively denied food and water, basically that corrections officers, you know, if they decided they were upset with someone, that they wouldn't give them water or food. People discussed, like, that the aging facility, you know, made for really unsanitary conditions, toilets that wouldn't flush, which meant that feces were just standing um, in the jail and not enough food. The Public Defender Service, actually one of the most powerful moments of testimony in some of the council hearings that followed that inspection, they shared recordings of their clients who were talking about things like not having enough food to digest medicine properly and getting a stomach ache from medicine because they weren't being fed enough. So the jail is not overcrowded like it was before. That's something that's changed over the years, but a lot of the complaints about conditions still stand.
2: Yeah, I mean, starvation and like the smell of human waste is still pretty bad. That sounds pretty bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's this like irony in the middle of this, as I understand it, which is a bunch of the right wing January six arrestees uh, have been there in DC jail and are complaining bitterly about how unfair it is and 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 everything, which uh, you know would not be news to DC inmates who are there for non insurrection reasons. But this actually wound up, I mean, some people think this is a reason why this thing actually got some attention at long last.
1: Well, yeah, because they were lodging their complaints with federal judges, and it was a federal judge who then, you know, ordered the marshal service to go in and inspect the jail.
0: Wow. Wow. Thanks, insurrectionists. Yeah,
1: and one thing that's interesting about the insurrectionist complaints is they're actually being held in the correctional treatment facility, which is adjacent to the D.C. jail, which is the central detention facility. It's the newer side of the D.C. jail complex, and it's the lower security side. It's where women are held, and it's also where people who are considered, I guess, less high security are held. They're put there to sort of segregate them from the rest of the jail population so that there wouldn't be issues, but it's actually the side of the jail that there have been less complaints about condition-wise.
0: And they're building a new one. Where is that going to be and what is what is it going to be?
1: A lot of the planning for that is really unclear, but the budget that Bowser unveiled in May, um, included about $250 million spread out over the next six years to design and build a new replacement for the D.C. jail. It's really unclear what that has looked like. The city has put in funding over the past few years for a task force to put forward recommendations. That task force has put out some recommendations. They want a facility that's radically different from, from the one that currently exists. But we haven't seen a lot of concrete plans for what any of that will look like.
2: Right. But then like also since this has been moving so slowly and then now the city administrator, Kevin Donahue, who helped unveil the budget proposal and like the fact that they're going to be setting aside funding for this jail. He is now the acting deputy mayor of public safety since Chris Geldhart resigned this week. So like I imagine that that shake up and all of the chaos that's happening in the department right now is probably going to slow this down even more.
1: I'm sure it will play a role. One thing to note about Kevin Donahue, though, is that he held the public safety and justice deputy mayor position before he was city administrator. So he was actually doing a lot of that work and he was in charge at the time that this task force, you know, for jails and justice and and was actually doing its work. Oh, cool. So like he knows this inside out. Yeah, that's one you know piece that might smooth that transition a bit.
0: Well, or he was supervising it at a time of grotesque abuses and didn't fix them. Is that another way of looking at it? I hate to be a cynic here, but...
1: I mean, I think that is the story of the entire last 50 years, right? Is that the same problems have been coming up over and over again. And I'm not sure that they'll be fixed just by a new building. I mean, a lot of the complaints about the D.C. jail right now that I'm hearing and that I've heard from people, you know, in recent weeks and people detained there and their families, they don't even necessarily have to do with the actual physical condition of the building. They have to do with the way that people are treated by staff. At the Department of Corrections, they have to do with a sort of basic level of a basic lack of respect that people feel when they're held in the jail for their needs.
0: It's time to get dressed up, D.C. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C., the gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support SUMS Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash springsoiree. That's S-O-M-E dot springsoiree. See you there. Um, All right. Well, listen, we're going to move on to our segment about where big W meets little w, which is a periodic thing we do the uh, local city colliding into the federal city. And it happens. This week, it's something I wrote actually about in my column in Politico last week, uh, in the person of Michael Fanon, who was a Metropolitan Police Department uh, officer who has become uh, quite famous since January 6, 2021. He was attacked by the mob. He was tased multiply. He was beaten with the post of a Blue Lives Matter flag and it became something of a of a celebrity afterwards, because he went on TV. And uh, one of the questions he was asked was, what would you say to the members of the mob who, who actually saved you? And he said, well, I'd say, thank you, but F you for being there. And this uh, turned him into a kind of viral figure. He's, he has a memoir out this week. And in the book, in addition to talking about what he sees as the terrible treatment that he got from uh, Republican uh, members of Congress, uh, senators, uh, leaders, Uh, who he thinks want to just sweep January 6th under the rug for political reasons. And this is a guy who had voted for Trump, but is now obviously very disillusioned and calls it a coup. He has a lot of discussion about the Metropolitan Police Department. And it's stuff that I think ought to be an enormous local news story in D.C. because he paints a picture of an MPD that is shot full of Trumpists, that is racially riven. He was basically, the way he writes it, disowned, treated like a leper, by white cops, while black cops who saw what he had been through supported him. And he is particularly vitriolic about the FOP, the local... He doesn't much like the national FOP, but he's particularly harsh about the 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 local FOP for the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, uh, which he says. What does FOP
2: uh, stand for? Oh,
0: sorry, that's the union. It's the Fraternal Order of Police, and you know, mm-hmm. publicly they're like back the blue, back the blue. But in reality, in his experience, he says, when it came to shining a light on the mistreatment that he had gotten and the Republican elected officials who were trying to sweep it under the rug, he got nothing from them. And In fact, he, he so one of the things in this. Um, in making this book, he, he made recordings, like he would go to see the head of the local police union in DC, where he's basically saying to him, like, listen, I don't want to get into talking about who's right and who's wrong on January 6th, because a lot of my members would be upset, basically he's saying he's got political reasons, he doesn't want to, uh, to upset the many Trumpists within the local union. And I have to say, like, I, I think I'm pretty cynical, but I was really pretty Shocked to read that description of the MPD. I'm I'm willing to believe all manner of incompetence and veniality, but I was really surprised by his descriptions of the politics of of a lot of his uh, fellow officers. He ultimately, by the way, uh, he left the department. He, he was worried for his physical safety. Now, look, at I, I don't you know this is a guy who's been through a trauma. I don't want to set myself up judging like like should he be, have been afraid or not. But it's a pretty horrific portrait he paints of. Uh, the rank and file of the local police.
2: Well, I mean, and as far as being afraid, in your column, you mentioned that you guys were followed around by some yeah. like people so, who supported the insurrection, right?
0: So, right, he, because he's like on, because um, he's on TV a lot, and he's he's become kind of a a, a bête noir of the radical right. And we met outside the courthouse we, the, the week before last. His um, the first of his assailants was uh, sentenced to seven years and. Prison. And it was like a scene out there. It was also the first day of the Oath Keeper's trial. So it was just like a lot of rando snarling people walking around. And this one guy is like harassing, uh, you know, he's sort of putting his camera in the face of like the TV cameraman and stuff. And then he sees me and Fanon and we're walking. And he starts following us and holding up his phone to record us. And Fanon's sort of like, yeah, this is my life now. By the way, I did uh, I did a control F on the electronic version of this. There's 220 pages in the book, 155 F-bombs. So he is in very call for terms against the Defund the Police movement, but he has actually really thoughtful things to say about, about race and policing, things I don't necessarily agree with all of, but he's a person who's clearly given this quite a lot of thought. But if the my big takeaway was like, holy smokes, how is it that our like city officialdom isn't like calling for Investigations into the culture of MPD and into insurrectionism uh, within the ranks.
2: Yeah, I mean, Jenny, is this anything that you've kind of looked into as part of your criminal justice reporting?
1: Yeah, the Ward 4 Council member, Janice Lewis George, actually introduced a bill last year to look at and root out white supremacist ties within MPD. It's something that um, Police Chief Conti says he's looking at too, um, but I agree that it bears further scrutiny. I also think that what you're talking about is maybe not even like explicit ties to white supremacist groups, but more of a sort of culture among certain police officers, um, where people are retaliated against in either subtle or not so subtle ways for expressing certain political views. And there have been like sort of little dust steps over the years of police officers having photos taken of them with a sort of, you know, Blue Lives Matter or, you know, that kind of insignia. There's movement to look at this, but I haven't seen any official findings, if that makes sense.
0: And I will say, you know, he's he in this book, Fanon, is pretty critical of the D.C. leadership on a sort of support the cops point of view. And he he says one of the D.C. council members doesn't identify the person, told him like, oh, we'd love to, you know, honor you guys, but my constituents just hate cops. And I think of that as like a, if it happened, as like a really dumb uh, misreading of the constituency, because I think people are certainly sophisticated enough to like hate bad policing, but also think people who got like the crap kicked out of them trying to prevent a coup ought to be treated as heroes I think people are, are like capable of, of of holding two views at once uh, on that front and it's it's a pretty easy shot
2: yeah and from their views it sounds like Fanon kind of puts forth a really nuanced perspective on policing so that's that's the reason I'm most interested in reading the book not the f-bombs not the F-bombs. So, I mean, you know, come for the
1: F-bombs, stay for the nuanced take on policing. Yeah, I mean, I think another area that bears scrutiny and I think that Fanon is gesturing at and talking about is how much support there has been for officer mental health and for the PTSD like that people have from January 6th. Because it's something, it's, he's not the only person or only police officer that I've heard has really severe trauma from that day and from the day surrounding it. So, you know, I'd be curious to know how much support police officers are actually getting in that area.
0: Well, I think that's a thing we are going to look forward to looking at your reporting about going forward. Definitely. Well, Speaking of mental health. Uh, 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 That's my favorite transition of the year.
1: Uh,
0: uh, We are going to talk a little bit today before we go about uh, things to do in the fall this weekend. Um, Priyanka, take it away.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to be doing like the fun story this time. There are so many fall things to do in D.C. And so I kind of knocked out the pumpkin picking and apple picking off these lists because we would just be here for hours. But I wanted to talk about some of the farms and some of like the more scary things going on in October, leading up to Halloween. So, okay, for you guys, what are your favorite like fall types of activities to do at a farm? Like, is it corn maze? Is it petting zoo? Zip line? Obstacle course? Like, what are you looking for? And then I'll, I'll hit you with some suggestions.
0: None of those things.
2: (laughs) None of those things? What do you like? No,
0: I'm kidding. I actually like (laughs) apple picking. I could give you a a riff about how, um, you know, it's sort of an outrage that they make us uh, pay for doing their labor, but I don't know. I like apples and and, and when they're good, they're good.
2: That's true. That's true. If you like apple picking, if you look around in the city itself for like what Ancho, the cidery is calling urban apples, they're collecting them to help make a cider- that they're calling DC as uh oh man, I can't say this. DC as F cider. You guys get what I'm saying, right? I don't, I don't get it. Will this.
0: you spell it out, please?
2: Oh, come <laughs> on, Mike. <laughs> get a couple um,
0: ciders into you and you'll say it.
2: Yeah, there we go. Anyway, go around town, grab some urban apples for for your picking. Fun. Wait,
0: so I'm supposed to like grab apples like that fall out of people's shopping carts, or you know, <laughs> or like are on the sidewalk?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm confused about what an urban apple is. I know there are crab apple trees. Is that what they're talking about?
0: Urban apple seems like a euphemism for something like not good.
2: <laughs> you know, right? It does. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they mean crab apples, but like literally, any, I mean, there are apple trees all over the city. I, I don't know. Like, climb into your neighbor's backyard or something, and grab some apples. I guess that's what they mean. So they're encouraging
0: criminality too.
2: Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm just keeping in theme with this this episode. They say that they'll also collect pears. And then if you do that, if you grab some apples and you go and drop them off, I don't know if there's like a quota for how many apples you have to bring, but then they'll give you a free draft beer or draft cider and then use your apples to make their DC as F cider. And all the proceeds are going to go to the DC abortion fund. So this is like very DC on multiple levels. So there, I got some apple picking in there for you, Mike.
0: Awesome. Thank you. What, um, what, what, except for the picking. It's more like apple scavenging.
2: Right? Yeah, it is like apple scavenging, apple foraging, if you will. I'm personally really into corn mazes. And so the closest corn maze that I thought was cool is the Maryland corn maze. They're calling it a Jurassic maze. So I think there's like a theme going on. It's eight acres big. So that's massive. And it's only a 40-minute drive away and fifteen ninety-five. So like... Not not too bad. And they're also open until November 6th, where most of the mazes and stuff close at the end of October. So that's the one I'm really excited about. I also saw a different farm. I think it was called Schlegel Farm that had a baby chick holding station, but I don't think that they're open anymore. So that's a bummer.
0: And then you talked about a farm that has cow ruts.
2: Yeah, the Cow Rides Farm. That's um, Great Country Farms. It's a little bit further away. It's in Bluemont, Virginia. So it's a 75 minute drive. But they have cow rides. They also have cider pressing demonstrations.
0: Does that mean you ride like you, the visitor, ride on a
2: cow? So it's called a cow train, which is so like it's like a train being pulled by a cow, I believe. It's only two dollars a ride.
1: So you don't actually get on the cow. You're on the train that's being pulled by the cow.
2: That's what it sounds like. Is that like. cruel to cows? They don't have a lot of information. I think we just have to show up and find out. <laughs> there aren't even any pictures here. They're like really, you know, playing up the mystique around these cow trains. They also have a cow pie putt-putt course, which just sounds messy.
0: That I think I'd rather look for urban apples. or Maybe those are urban right?
2: apples. Then. Yeah. <laughs> And then if you're interested in like scary fun stuff happening around town, there's a lot for that too. We as the CityCast DC team are going to be going to Markov's Haunted Forest really soon so that we can put out an episode where we're all screaming and you can listen to us scream.
0: That thing is supposed to be legit scary.
2: I know. We asked them how scary it is on a scale of one to 10 and they said nine. And I don't do horror. Actually, I don't think anyone on our team is really into horror. So this is going to be rough, but we're doing it for the pod.
1: This, we're doing this for you,
0: the Blair Witch podcast. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. When you go, you should ask them about the horses. So when I was a kid, they used to have an element of it where at the end they would chase you across a field on horseback. You'd be chased by horses. They stopped oh my that. God. I think maybe for safety reasons, but you should ask them about how they used to do that and why and then why they stopped.
2: I can't believe that they used to do that. Yeah. That sounds like a like a recipe for lawsuits all over the place.
0: If that happened to me, Ooh. I would jump on the nearest cow train.
2: <laughs> That's amazing.
0: <laughs> um, all right. So on that note... <laughs> That's all for today here on CityCast DC. But one more fall thing to look for, it's election season. So if you've got questions about any races or initiatives in the Virginia, DC or Maryland ballots, send them our way. Okay, now we're done for real. Jenny Gathrit, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. By the way, she provided us with most of the great fall content. So if you want more of that, you should subscribe to her newsletter. You can do that on dc.citycast.fm. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. We'll be back Monday morning with more stories for you.
2: Bye. I'm laughing at the the typing, like is like ASMR. (laughs)